couple weeks ago, we started this letter of 1 Peter, um, and Peter has begun his letter by reminding them of some very important things, specifically their salvation. Peter's writing to a group of people, a group of believers, who are likely in the midst of trials and tribulations. More than likely, it's heavy persecution at this time, and he wants them to know a couple of things. It's in the most difficult times that we need to go back and remember the truths that are foundational to our hope and to our faith. So he first tells them, he says, hey, you guys were elect by God. You were elect by God. Your election was for a purpose. You weren't randomly chosen. You were chosen for a purpose, and it was so that you could be sanctified so that you could be set apart, so that you could be obedient to what the Lord has for you, and that you could be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. He also told them, he said, you have a salvation that can never be taken away from you. You need to remember that. You have a salvation that can never be taken away. That's what Peter told them. He says, you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a hope that is alive, and it won't fade. Oh, you might forget about that hope. You might misplace that hope sometimes and put it on your career or your financial situation. You can redirect that hope, but that hope will always be there for the believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can hang your hope in eternity. Hang it in the heavens and leave it there. Because that's what's going to navigate you through difficult circumstances. He said you have a salvation that is secure because it was kept by the power of God. That it wasn't based on your ability to do something right. It wasn't based on your strength or your righteousness. It was based on God's. It was based on Him. And then last week, we followed that up. We listened and we learned as Paul built upon this. He told us last week that the salvation that we experience as Christians, even if it's in persecution, even if it's in difficulty, even if it's in trials and hardship, he said it's a special salvation. He told us, if you remember last week, the prophets looked for it. The prophets prophesied about it. They wanted to see it. They wanted to find it. They searched for it, but they never got to see the salvation that we get to live. The Old Testament prophets never got to read a word of the New Testament, although much of the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. They didn't get to peruse Paul's letters. They couldn't read read John's book of Revelation. They didn't know what was coming, but they searched for it. And we also learned something interesting about angels. What did we learn? That they're looking into your life. They're peering in. They're squatting down, trying to get a closer look at who you are. They're wondering, why would God love somebody like you? I meant me. Why would God love somebody like us? We speculated that angels had never seen grace before. Before mankind, they didn't know what it looked like. For Satan sinned and fell immediately from heaven. But yet we fall short and the grace of God is placed upon us. Because this grace, because this salvation is so great, Peter gave them some instruction. He told them to gird up the loins of their mind. He told them to be sober, and he told them to rest their hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I challenged you last week. What is your hope resting on? Where is it? Where have you placed your hope? What is it in? Is it in a future spouse? Is it in a family? Is it in a job? Is it in a career? Is it in a financial situation? Is it in retirement? Because you get to a point in life, I'm going to hope in retirement. You may never make it to retirement. Where is your hope resting? Where Where did you place it? He went on, Peter went on to encourage them to live a holy life and to remember something. He said, hey, you were redeemed, but it wasn't with corruptible things. It wasn't with silver or gold. You were redeemed from your aimless conduct, he said. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It cost him something to purchase you. 
It cost him something. It wasn't just money, something that he could create. It was something he had to give of himself. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, Peter continues to encourage them in how they should live their lives. He's going to give them some instruction in light of this wonderful gift of salvation. And I know that as Christians, we take salvation, it's just a word. Are you saved? I'm saved. Are you saved? Yes, we're saved. Please consider the deeper meaning of that word. Consider what it really means. Pick up with me in verse 22, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers falls away. But, look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Peter says, since you have purified your souls. Well, how did I do that, Peter? How did we purify our souls? Peter told you you obeyed the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren. You and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have purified our souls by obeying the following. Perhaps you could say believing the following. We're believing the testimony of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus Christ is. I come to the recognition that I'm a sinner, that I need a Savior. I believe on Jesus Christ. He says, I will forgive you of your sins if you believe on me. Then I'm, I'm, I'm coming to him. I become a Christian. I become a follower of Jesus Christ. He forgives my sins, and then I follow him for that. Now, at first read, and you look at verse 22, it might be a little bit confusing because there's the word love is used twice. We see it there two times, but what we need to understand is it's actually two different words for love. You see, we have this thing in our English language when we, when we try to understand the Greek, I can say the word love. And that same word love applies to, I love the puppy dog, I love ice cream, I love my wife, I love Jesus. But that's not really the same word. I don't love my wife the way I love ice cream. I don't love a puppy dog the way I love Jesus. It's, it's, it's one word, but it has different meanings. In the Greek, it's kind of split up. They have more than one word for love. The first time love is used there. Let me read it to you. We have purified our souls by obeying or following. Perhaps you could say believing there. We talked about that. Now at the first read there, verse 22. The first time love is used, it says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love you can circle that word for love you can write the word next to it philadelphia it comes from the word phileo it means brotherly love the city of philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love it's where it comes from it's the idea it's a familial type love it's a type that's between love that's between a brother and a sister between two brothers between a family yes they may fight they may argue but there's still this loving bond between them it's a family love there but the second word love, since you have pure, let me read it to you again in context. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit with a brotherly love, it can also mean without hypocrisy. So a brotherly love that is without hypocrisy. Now, Peter says, I want you to go further and love, that word there is agape, one another. The word here for the second love is agape. Philadelphia for the first one, agape for the second one. Philadelphia, the brotherly love, agape love is a love that is an exercise of the human will. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's, a, it's not determined by the beauty or the desirability of an object 
but by the intention of the one who is doing the loving. It's not something you feel inside of you. It's something you do. Agape love is a choice. It's a no-strings-attached love that involves sacrifice or the giving of oneself to another. Peter commanded the readers to go further than brotherly love. Don't just stop at brotherly love. And what did he tell them? I want you to love agape. I'll display agape love. He tells them to do it how fervently with the pure heart. Fervently with the pure heart. Now, I got I to gotta be honest with you. I always thought agape love was like this, it was like this threshold that I could never reach. You know, like I, I would never be good enough. I mean, I can't do that. I can't love unconditional. I can't, I can't love that much. It's just impossible. It was always this thing that I would never understand. But I want to explain it to you here in the context because it says fervently love. And that word fervently is important because here's what you need to understand about fervently. It's a physiological term meaning to stretch to the furthest limit of a muscle's capacity. It's a stretching of a muscle to its furthest limit. Metaphorically, the word means to go all out, to reach the furthest extent of something. The most you are able, love each other with all of the ability that you have, he's saying. Now, here's how I want to illustrate it to you. Here's, the, here's what I think of. Think of two people. You've got two people standing next to each other. One of them is very flexible, and one of them is not so flexible. So the flexible person, you say, all right, guys, bend over and touch the floor. Well, the flexible person bends over, puts, I'll say her, because it's probably more likely a girl, puts her hands on the palms on the floor. And the guy, he's lucky if he can get past his knees, maybe down to his ankles if he's really lucky. And if he's really flexible for a guy, he can get to his toes. Now, there's two different levels, but both of them are fervently stretching. They're fervently, they're, they're going, they're, they're taking it to the most, to the maximum point of their ability. They're going as far as they can go. So here's what I want you to see. Even though one person may be more flexible than the other, they're both fervently reaching for their toes. Notice this, it's personal. It's not a standard that you're trying to reach. It's based on your own ability. You see, what I'm trying to get across is one person may have the ability to love, agape love, more than another, but our ability to love will unconditionally, it's going to grow as you exercise it. So there's not a hidden standard up high that I have to reach. You stretch yourself in love as far as you can go. For one person, that's going to look different than someone else. An unconditional love for one person who's just starting, it might not be very much. You might look, well, that's not very good at all, but I've stretched as far as I can stretch. For another person, they can touch their, their, the floor with their palms, but they're only stretching to their knees. You go, you need to stretch a little bit farther than that. You are not fervently loving. You are just kind of barely getting by. You see, that freed me up because I understood something about that. Agape love is not a goal I have to reach. It's just me reaching my full, full, full potential at that moment, at that time. And I believe it's just like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more you're going to use it, the more you're going to, uh, the, 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 the more flexible it's going to become, the more fervently, the farther you will get in that. Do you understand? Does that make sense to you? Good. Peter is saying that you have the brotherly love. You have that. That's what happens to between believers. Now I want you to go further. Love one another, agape one another, fervently with a pure heart, not selfish motivations. But again, it brings us to the question, Peter, how do we do this? How do we do it? How can we love like this? He tells you there in verse 23, because you've been born again. Look at verse 23. How can we do this? Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You have been born again. He says, not with corruptible seed, like when we were born from our mother's womb. No, as a Christian, you've been born again from an incorruptible seed, an eternal seed, the word of God which lives and abides forever. 
See, this agape love that Peter's talking about, it doesn't come naturally. You can't stir it up with inside yourself. But when you were born again, you have a spirit-empowered capacity for love that wasn't there before. It's something new that you can now tap into. Oh, you don't have to use it, but it's there. It's available to you. You, ha you have the choice. I can choose to use it, or I can choose not to use it. It's the ability to love in a way that wasn't inside of you before you came to salvation. Peter's encouraging his readers there to use it. And to strengthen his point, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 there, and he says, And all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Human life is brief in this world. Have you come to understand that? People will pass away. Ten out of ten people die. Just like the grass withers at the coming of fall and the winter, as winter approaches, the flowers fade away. The moment they bloom, they start fading. Our lives are much like the same thing. But the word of the Lord, I can't speak, the word of the Lord endures forever. Do you realize the implication of what's being said there? Have you noticed that the words of man fade away? Have you noticed that it's, it's, it just happens that way? The most expensive and popular books of today in the bookstores, on the iTunes, things, whatever, they'll be on the clearance shelf in a year or two. You'll be able to pick them up for next to nothing. When I was still working in law enforcement, I had a friend of mine, he was a, a co-worker, and he became a published author. And he began writing books, and he got several of his books published. Like a, not a self-published, he actually really got published, where he was getting paid for it. I bought his book. I think I bought it on Amazon. I paid one cent for it after it had been out for a little while. I brought it in and I showed him. I said, I bought your book for a, for a cent. Words of Man. It, it, was, it was a fiction book, but it, it didn't, it always, when it first came out, it was 20 bucks. I bought it for a penny on the clearance table on Amazon. It was easy to find. But the words of God, the words of the Lord will endure forever. Man's words quickly give way to the next great thing, the next big idea, the next cool thing, the next fad. But God's word endures forever. Do you know why man's words don't last forever? You, you, you want me to let you in on a secret? We really don't know what we're talking about. Truth be told, we really don't have it as, we're not as smart as we think we are. We're really not. Let me give you a little bit of, let me just back up that statement. In the 1950s, so go back, do your math, you know, 60 years ago. Do the math, 50s. People thought smoking cigarettes was healthy. That's how they touted, the commercials talked about it being healthy. Think about that. We look at that and go, that's just ludicrous. We know that science has disproved that, but that in the 50s, they believed that. You realize in the 1950s, not that long ago, doctors were performing regular lobotomies. Now, do you know what that is? I had to look that up because I read that. It's where they drill a hole in this side of your head, they drill a hole in this side of your head, and they stick stakes like metal things in your head, and they jiggle your brain all around and try to make it work right. Now, you would look at me and go, who in their right? That, that was medicine. That's what they were doing back then. This is in the 50s. If you had an alcohol problem, do you know one of, the, one of the ways they would treat you in the 50s was with LSD. LSD therapy for alcoholism. Now we look at this and go, that's absolutely ridiculous. But that was what was being done at that time. That's the wisdom of man. That's the words of man. I'm sure there were papers written. There were professors that did these things. Who was in their right mind? Go, yeah, you can drill. You can go ahead and drill tools inside of my head and stick something in there and jiggle it around. Tell me how it works out for you. People were coming. It wasn't working. People were changing. Well, of course they're changing. You're messing with their brain. 
yet the word of God goes unchanged. It endures forever. We're still sitting here reading it. It's just as applicable to our human life today as it was the days, thousands, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's just as applicable today as it was back then. Just as, it's amazing to me. The word of God endures forever. It goes unchanged. It's still the truth. Yet so often it gets swept under the rug. It's just, a, ah, we already got that. No, this is where our life is held. This is where our focus needs to be. The word of God endures forever. So you've been saved by the word of God. Now what do you do? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. Why? That you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Therefore, therefore, Peter says, in light of the glory and eternal character of God's word, in light of what God's word is, there are some things that we need to stop doing. There are some things that we need to lay aside. That word for lay aside, it's a participle that has imperative force. Since you are now a Christian, in other words, it means you must separate yourself from these things. You must put these things away. You must take these things off. Consider if you've worked outside all day and you come in and you want to get in the shower, you separate yourself. You take off your dirty clothes and put them in the dirty clothes basket. That's what he's talking about. There are certain sins in your life. There are certain things, and he lists five of them here that you need to take off. You need to separate yourself from the first one he says is malice. Well, what exactly is malice? It's a feeling of hostility and strong dislike of someone with the possible implication of desiring to do harm. It's a, it's a hateful feeling towards someone. It's you really don't like someone. It's how you feel about other people. Do you have people? Is there someone in your life that you say, I don't like, I hate them? That's malice. What did, what did Peter just say? You've been saved by the blood of Christ. Take it off. Get rid of it. Choose not to hate them any longer. You have that choice. It's also a word that can be used to describe general wickedness. The next thing he says, what does he say put off? All deceit. Now I like that he put all in front of there. Because somehow in our mind we've decided that little white lies are okay. There are certain things that are okay, but he says no, all deceit. He puts all in front of it. Don't even leave a little bit. Now if you do the research like I did, deceit. It's a term, and here's what it means, and I really like this. I didn't, I didn't know this till this study. I hadn't found it before. It refers to bait or a fish hook. Deceiving someone. When you go fishing, what are you doing? You're trying to catch the fish. So what are you doing? You're deceiving them with bait. Whatever, you, whatever bait you think they're going to bite is what you're going to put on your fish hook. Can we do that to each other as Christians? You bet we can. You bet we can deceive each other. We can lie about who we are. We can lie about successes, lie about failures. We can lie about all kinds of things in a way to deceive somebody to try to make them think a certain way about me or a certain way about you. Peter says, get rid of all deceit, all dishonesty, all falsehood, all treachery, all deception. It should be gone out of our life. Why? Because we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. He also says, get rid of all hypocrisy there. Hypocrisy. It's a great little word. It's a word that was used to describe an actor or an actress. It was one who would get on the stage and perform. Uh, they, would they would have a mask over their face. They would pretend to be someone else. 
They were, they were, they were called a hypocrite or hypocrite is in the Greek. It was a, they, were, they were pretending to be someone else. Get rid of all hypocrisy. On a more technical term, it meant to judge under, to one person passing judgment on another from behind a covered position. So you really they don't see you. You're just you're pretending to be someone you're not, but you're judging them for who they are. But they really can't see that you are somebody that you're not who you are either. It's interesting to me. Hypocrisy ties back to Greek playwrights, actors, actresses. They get paid to make us think they're somebody they're not. Yet in our culture, so often we look at our actors and our actresses and we want to hear their opinion when it comes to things like politics or religion or life in general. But do you want to hear their opinion or do you want to hear their character's opinion? Because if you've ever read a book, you've ever watched a movie, sometimes you can really get to like a character that somebody's playing, but that's not who they really are. You, you, you can fall in love and admire and think, wow, what a great character. But they're not that character at all. They're somebody completely different. Yet when they speak you think they're speaking for that character. What are they? They're getting paid to make you think they're somebody they're not. He also said to get rid of envy. Envy, envy. And this is one that we tend to skip over. It's one we tend to pass over. Listen to what envy is. Envy is the attitude of those who resent others' prosperity. The attitude of those who resent others' prosperity. It often leads to grudges, bitterness, hatred, and conflict. Can you rejoice with someone who's blessed financially if you're financially struggling? Or does the attitude come, well, it must be nice. It must be nice for you. It's too bad for you. I mean, I, too bad. Well, you've got plenty. Why don't you help me? Then I, why, why don't you share with me so I can enjoy what I have? Or can you just simply rejoice because God's blessing a brother or sister in Christ with something great? Is it, is it, or is it something that you become envious of? You can hold it against them. You can, you can create a conflict with them. It'll cause you to eventually become a victim in life. You're not, it's not fair. Everybody else has got something I don't have. You're not content whatsoever. You become envious of everything and anything, and, and you want what you can't have, and you get... Listen, it's a serious sin that will lead you away from the people of God and into a pity party for yourself. That's where it'll take you. Poor me. Poor, poor me. I, I can't believe it. Everybody else has got it better than me. And ultimately, it's going to make you mad at God. It's going to make you mad at God for blessing other people, and you're going to be that victim that goes, it's just not fair. It's not fair. Envy must be something that's recognized in your life. It must be repented of. The thought comes into your head. You've got to realize I'm being envious, and it needs to be destroyed and done away with. Don't entertain it. Don't let it go. It's too easy. You've heard the saying, keeping up with the Joneses. That's envy i got to get something because someone else got it. Someone else has it, so I have to have it. It's i got to have it. Maybe someone else can afford it. It's not a problem for them. Maybe for you it is a problem. The idea of not being envious means I'm content with what God gave me. Whatever that might be, great or small, big or little, I'm content with right where I have. But we can become so envious of other people, not only finances, relationships, careers, jobs, all kinds of things. And that's not what the Lord would want. Why shouldn't we be envious? Because you have the power of salvation living in you. You have an eternal hope. And everything that you're envying here on this earth is temporary. It's, it's going to burn one day. Your hope is in eternity. And if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter how wealthy or poor you are. You have the same hope in eternity that someone wealthy does if you're poor. If you're poor, someone wealthy. It's the same hope in eternity. It makes no difference what kind of car you drive, how big of a house you live in. Where's your hope? Where do you hang it? Is it envious? hanging in eternity but then he said hey get rid of evil speaking 
evil speaking. Now, this isn't necessarily referring to bad language, although that would be a good thing to put away also. This is, this is more of a tattletaling. This is more backbiters. This is more those people who slander people behind other people's back, and we would call that what? Gossip. This is more gossiping. Get rid of this evil speaking, gossiping about people. And I love it in the Christian world because we don't know what we can say about somebody, what we can't say about somebody. Well, is that gossip or is that not gossip? You know, we do the whole, well, I got a prayer request. Let me tell you, have you heard what's happened to, to, to Bobby Sue? No, what's, well, don't tell anybody, but I want you to pray for him, okay? And you lay out the whole story. Listen, it's real simple. If you would share what you're sharing while them standing next to you, it's not gossip. If you have to mask what you're saying, if they walked up, then you better stop saying it. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, can you pray for so-and-so? They're going through a difficult time. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if you have to all of a sudden talk, if you put too many details out there, they don't need all the details. They just need to know the pray. You don't need, they don't need to hear it all. Evil speaking, he says, put away, take it off, get rid of it. And notice there, Peter doesn't just tell them to stop something. He instructs them to desire something. Look there in verse 2. I want you to desire this. As newborn babes... Desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Just like a newborn baby desires its mother's milk, as Christians we are to desire the nourishment of God's word. Why? Why should we do that? He told you right there, because it makes you grow. You may grow thereby. The baby grows physically with good nourishment. You will grow spiritually through the nourishment of the word. You want to see Christians grow? Teach them the Bible. You want to grow in your Christian life? Study the scriptures. You want to, you want to, you want to see God use you mightily? Get in the word of God so that he can prepare you to be used. Pastor Chuck always had a saying. He said, healthy sheep always reproduce healthy sheep. He said, if you'll teach, he always told the pastor, he said, if you'll teach your congregation, just teach them what the Bible says and how to apply it to their life, they will grow healthy and they will reproduce healthy sheep. And he wasn't talking about a church growing. I mean, that's part of it. He was talking about families growing stronger. For moms and dads that grow in the word, your children can now grow in the word and their children can grow in the word. The whole body of Christ can grow stronger. Unfortunately, we're, we're not very educated when it comes to the word of God in many, in many cases. Unfortunately, there are too many malnourished Christians today. They're not getting the right food. Why? Because they're not being fed the Word of God. They're not being taught the Word of God. Too many churches teach modern psychological principles intertwined with philosophy. They cover politics and even the latest, greatest book that man has written. What did we just learn about man's words? They're going to fade away. What about God's words? It's going to endure forever. So where should we spend our time studying? In God's words. Why? Because in God's word, what you study when you're 18 will still be true when you're 68. Man's words, you're not going to remember the book that you read by man when you were, when you were a kid. You're not going to remember that. I'm convinced that Christians today, and this is kind of a saying that I have to, I have to admit, I think I stole it. I stole it from my nephew. And he said this, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. He said, Christians today are overpreached and undertaught. We're overpreached and undertaught. And by that I mean, we'll go sit and listen to a sermon that makes us feel good and we'll laugh a little, but what we really need is the word of God taught to us so it changes our life. We need to have our heart convicted. We need to have, be encouraged when we're down. We need, sometimes, we need, sometimes you need a spiritual spanking from the word of God. It just happens. It's good for you. It's not unhealthy at all. You see, but unfortunately, 
oftentimes it becomes a preaching. He's preaching, 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 preaching. People will ask me, what did you preach on? I didn't preach, I taught. What did you teach on? I taught on 1 Peter. You know, why, do, why don't we do different books? Why don't we do different things? Why do we t- study the Bible the way that we do? Because the word of God endures forever. This is why we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. When we finish 1 Peter, we'll go to 2 Peter. When we finish 2 Peter, we'll go to another book of the Bible. We'll work through that systematically the same way. Because that's what, do you, do you know, I mean, certainly that's a, a Calvary Chapel distinctive, but do you know why I, I do it that way? Because that's what changed my life. When I began sitting in a church that taught me the word of God, I was faced with decisions because it wasn't the pastor's idea. When the pastor preaches a message and he takes verses and he sprinkles them around so that his message is substantiated in the word of God, it's not the same thing as the pastor saying, the word of God says, put away malice, put away evil speaking, put away, um, put away these things. It's different when God's word says it than when I say it. Because when I say it, you can go, eh, I don't know if I agree with that. That's okay. That's cool. Whatever. That's his opinion. But when you read it in God's word, You've got to go home today and you have to decide, am I going to put away deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, and malice? Am I going to put those away? Am I going to take, like, like I take off my clothes and throw them in the hamper? Or am I just going to go, ah, those are okay? You can make that choice, but you now know what God's word says. So you now have, are making that choice as an education, as, as an educated choice, because you know what God says about it, not what Rob says about it. Not, what I say really doesn't matter. F.B. Meyer said this, he said, The sickly condition of so many Christians sets forth a lamentable complaint of the food with which they are supplied. To say nothing of strong meat, they do not even get milk. Hence, the church of God too much resembles the wards of a children's hospital. In other words, they're not growing, they're not maturing, they're, not, they're, they're going through life, just they're not even getting a little bit of milk of the word, they're not even getting it all. Peter says, if you've tasted the Lord is gracious, then there should be a craving in you for the word of God. It doesn't mean that you're going to all be pastors or Bible teachers or things like that. You might just sit and read. You might not even understand it all, but as you keep reading, as you, as you commit yourself to it, as you go, you know what, there's something in here for me. You're going to find exactly what God wants you to find at exactly the right time that he wants you to find it. It's going to speak to your heart. It's going to change your life. It's what changed mine. As I listened and I read God's word for me, that's why I say open your Bibles to that's why I want your Bible here. That's why we don't put it on the screen. Because when you leave here today, you're going to say, what are those things I'm supposed to take off? You can open up the Second Peter and go, there it is. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. But if, it's, if I just gave you five points, you're going to forget my five points when you walk out of here. But God's word is right here. If God impressed upon your heart, hey, that's what you need to work on, then you leave here with a choice. Am I going to do it or not? Peter says, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, then you should crave the word of God like a new baby craves milk. You ever watch a new baby? What do they do? Eyes closed, half asleep, you know. Like, find it, I gotta have it, where is it? Let me go, you know. If they don't get it, what do they do? You know. That's how we should be with the word of God. I gotta get the word of God. I gotta, I gotta, get, some, I gotta get the word. I gotta eat. I gotta feed me. Look, verse 4. Coming to him. As to a living stone, we're coming to him as a living stone. This is Christ, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, this is us, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living stone. He's the chief cornerstone. 
He's been rejected by men, but he was chosen by God. And it says there that he's precious. He's precious. That word precious means of considerable worth or value. And Peter went on to say, we too are living stones. And we're being built up like a spiritual house. We're a holy priesthood capable of offering up acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. We're all built on top of him. So picture this. When you want to build a building and you want to use stones, the first stone that you set in the project is the cornerstone. And that stone has to be perfectly level. It has to be perfectly plumb in all directions. For if it's off leaning backwards a little bit, the wall will go up crooked. It might be straight, but it'll be crooked. So it's got to be level and plumb and all and square and plumb in all directions so the wall can go up straight, so the building can go up straight. If that first stone is laid wrong, then the building's going to be off. He's our cornerstone. He's the one that's laid first. We are built on top of him. What Peter's saying is, hey, you guys are part of something bigger here. Each one of you believers in Jesus Christ, you are now becoming a part of a building of a thing that God is building. And you're all one little piece in it, one little part in it. He's the cornerstone. We're the little stones that add up. Peter says it's true. Because you might be tempted to think, no, I don't know if it's true. He says, look, the Bible says so. In the next three verses, Peter will use three Old Testament quotes to prove Jesus was prophesied as the chief cornerstone. He's going to prove it to you. He's going to show you the difference between those who believe and those who reject Christ. Look at verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture... That means it's in the Bible. That's like Peter saying, look what the Bible says. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Here Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. God's making this promise that he will reject the rebellious leaders of of Israel in Jerusalem. He's going to reject the rebellious leaders in Jerusalem He's going to establish a sure foundation, a cornerstone, who is chosen and precious, who is unequal in value. The fact the cornerstone is being laid there in Zion, in Jerusalem, indicates a new work. A new building is being erected. You see, the Jewish people always thought they didn't see it as something new. They saw it as something in addition to. Christianity is not in addition to Judaism. Christianity is a new covenant between man and God. It's not, it's not just adding on to it. It comes out of it, but it's something new. It's a, he's the cornerstone of that. Peter's idea isn't that God has abandoned Israel or they have no place in his redemptive plan, but that Christianity is in no way inferior to Judaism. He's telling them we, God, is do, God has done something different here. And we see that, and we have the ability to look back over history and see that it is something different. We have the ability to look back 2,000 years. As Peter's writing this, this is breaking news. They're just getting to understand this. Just like a building is built around the cornerstone, every other stone is set based on the cornerstone, and we are built up around Jesus Christ. We're part of that something new. He's the living stone. He's He's the cornerstone. We're all the little living stones. We're all part of it. The fact that it says, he who believes in him will not be put to shame. That indicates that there will be no, there will never be, there will be no ultimate disappointment or embarrassment for those who trust in the true cornerstone, Jesus Christ. You will never be disappointed. You will never feel like, oh man, I should have stuck with my flesh. Oh man, I, I, 
Once you get to eternity, once this world is behind you, you're never going to look back and go, man, I should have went to that party. I really missed out on that party. It's going to be, your eyes are going to be opened to all that. And you're going to see what a blessing it is to believe on Jesus Christ. The fact that you are part of the new thing. We as Christians have a terrible habit of looking back on our old life and thinking about how much fun it was sometimes. Oh, I remember the good times. But remember the bad times as well. Remember what got you to Christ. Remember the mistakes or the things or whatever the Lord used to bring you to him. Don't just remember, oh, I had this one fun time with these friends and and forget about how evil it was or how sinful it may have been. Look at verse 7. He continues, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. He's precious. To you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, or that word can also mean disbelieving, to those who are disbelieving or disobedient, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense or offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Although Christ is rejected by those who are disobedient, those who disbelieve, to those of us who do believe, what does it say there? It says he is precious. He's precious. What does that word mean? Unequaled in value, of great worth. There is nothing in a believer's life more precious than their Savior. There is nothing that competes with him. He is unequaled in value. To those who do not believe, Christ is a stumbling block. He's a problem. Talk to a Jewish friend of yours if you have any. and Tell them about the Christ, the Messiah, and see how much of a stumbling block he is. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. Now listen as Peter describes those who believe on Jesus. Listen to what he says here in verse 9. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. These words once described the nation of Israel, but now they describe every single believer. We're children of the same family. We're stones in the same building, priests in the same temple. We're also citizens in the same nation. There's a different nation. There's a different thing being formed, the people of God. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, the description of the church is systematic and exhaustive. It is a race, and this suggests It's life principle. It is a priesthood and so has right of access to God. It is a nation and so is under his government. It is a possession and so is actually indwelt by him. Think about that for a moment. We're part of of something greater. You're not part of just a church here in Cumberland, Maryland. There's a building. There's something God's doing nationwide, worldwide with the gospel. And all of us that believe, we're part of that. It's going forth. And our culture with its Christian foundations, we don't really understand what this means, to be a part of something, to be privileged with this. But can you imagine being a Gentile and being told the gospel and then struggling with, do I have to become Jewish? Don't I have to become Jewish? And then Peter writes to you and says, you're already part of a great thing that God's doing. You don't have to become Jewish. You're already part of something. He's the, you're, you're, you're part of something new that's being built on Jesus Christ. And it's going to endure forever. It's going to last forever. Since we're part of the family of God, Peter wants to urge us to live in a certain way. Look at verse 11. 
He says, beloved, that's a term of endearment. Beloved, I beg you, I beg you. He's begging now. Peter, Peter's calling you beloved. He's begging you as sojourners and pilgrims. That's temporary residents here on this earth. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Beloved, I'm begging you, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Do you have a war going on inside of you? Is there a battle between your flesh and your spirit? What is Peter saying? He's saying the fact that there's an option there is creating the controversy. It's creating the war. There's some, well, well Rob, I, 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 want, I don't want to do these things, but I feel so pulled by my flesh to do these things. I feel so pulled to have these thoughts or to do whatever it is, but, but I know I shouldn't quit battling it. In other words, what he's saying is, of course, if you're, if you're fulfilling, if you're indulging, if you're considering your flesh, of course there's going to be a war because Paul would say they struggle against one another. So how do we solve that problem? It's simple. Take the flesh off the table. You only have an option as long as there's two choices in front of you. If there's only one choice, you only have one choice. There's no struggle. If I place two glasses, one with lemonade and one with Coca-Cola, and I go, which one do you want? You go, hmm, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I like both of them. I mean, but if I take the Coca-Cola away and say there's only lemonade, and say, which one do you want? You go, I want, I want the Coke. No option. Sorry. It's gone. Well, there's no more struggle anymore. I'm just going to take the lemonade because I'm thirsty. It's the same thing with our flesh. When we entertain it, when we give it what it wants, and we try to make provisions for the flesh, it causes a struggle in our soul. And what Peter's saying is here, I beg you as sojourners, remember you're only temporary, this flesh is only temporary, abstain from fleshly lust, which they're warring against your soul. And he goes on, he says, have your conduct. Let it be honorable among the Gentiles. Let it be honorable. The way that you live your life, people are watching. The way that you live, let the Gentiles, let them see that you live honorably. That when they speak against you as evildoers, and that was happening back then, they were, blame, they, were, they were saying bad things about the Christians. They were calling them cannibals for enjoying communion, saying that they were drinking the body, eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. They were claiming their agape feasts were wild orgies. They said Christians were antisocial because they quit hanging around with their old group of friends. They started hanging around with a new group of friends. But what Peter's saying is, have your conduct be honorable, so no matter what they say about you, they're going to look at your conduct and see it wasn't true. No matter what, what does your conduct say about you? Let your conduct be the one that speaks of what you believe. If you could no longer speak and someone was to come into your life and start watching you, would they know you're a Christian? If they watch the radio station, well, I know you guys always listen to Reveal FM, I got that. But if they watch the TV shows, if they watched what you read in the mornings, if they, watched your, if they checked out your hist computer history, if they checked out all these things about you that you could no longer speak and say, I'm a Christian. What would the evidence say? Would it say? Would, it, would, it, would, it, would, would there be enough evidence there of being a Christian? I'm not saying it'll all be Christian, but is, it, is, is there enough there that go, yes, that, wow, they're following Jesus? Or would it be sketchy at best? That's what Paul's saying is, listen, when people say evil things about you, just let your conduct stand. They, they can't argue with what, the, what you're what, They can say whatever they want, but if I'm living the life the way that I'm supposed to, don't, don't respond back to them. Just let them see your good conduct. Why? So that in the day of their visitation, they might glorify their God in heaven. They might come to know God through you. How is it that somebody who we said such evil things about 
is living such a pure and holy life. We were wrong. How could you do that? And you didn't even, and you didn't even lash back at us. You didn't, even, you didn't even put it on Facebook that we said that about you. You didn't, you didn't even tell anybody. You just kept serving the Lord faithfully. But so often we want to, someone says something bad about us, what do we do? What do we do? I put it on Facebook, write a blog about it, tweet it, Instagram, pictures, whatever. What Peter said, let your conduct, the truth be told, we may not like this, but the conduct is who we really are. Sometimes we're fooled into thinking that we're somebody that we're not because it's who we profess to be when really who we are is who we live. What do you do day in and day out? That's who you are. That's not who you say you are, it's who you are. What do you do when you're by yourself? What do you do when no one's looking? Is there enough evidence of Christianity? In, is there any evidence of Christianity in your life? I trust there is. I believe in the way, in our fellowship, I know that there is. Not that there's not room for improvement, but I get the blessing. I, I, I gotta tell you, I've had the blessing of being here as part of Calvary Chapel, teaching God's word now, going on almost 10 years. Almost 10 years. And I have watched men and women grow spiritually it's unbelievable to watch happen. And, and it's, it's not anything I'm doing. I'm just sharing God's word. I'm challenging them. I'm teaching them with God's word. They begin to grow. And we've got people, you know, Joey Cross stepping out and teaching a, a, a discipleship uh, um, foundations and faith class. We've got guys that are stepping out in ministry. We've equipped them for the work of the ministry. We've got Charlie and Dee doing youth. They, were, they didn't come to church expecting to be youth leaders one day. It was just the Lord said, hey, there's a need and moved on their heart and then he equips them to do it. It's just the, it's the amazing, it's God that does the work inside of people. It's the word of God that changes your life and it's what grows. It's what lasts forever. That's why it changes people. That's why when you, when you run across the believer that maybe you've run across them where they get saved and all of a sudden their whole life is changed in a day. It's not going to last. Why? Because it's an emotional change. Lives that are changed by the word of God last because that's what will endure forever. You see, Peter understands that our fleshly lusts will create a war within us. Against our soul, literally. So he begs us, he reminds us that, hey, we're sojourners here. We're only here temporarily. Only here for a short time. And those fleshly lusts, they're not even going to satisfy you. Even if they do temporarily, the moment it's gone, it's gone. But yet when we follow our eternal hope, and we hang that in the heavens, and we take the word of God and we put it in our heart, he says it will last forever. Can you imagine what Christianity would look like if believers knew the word of God inside and out? Inside and out. To where we could quote it back to one another. To where you go, I'm having a problem. Oh yeah, I remember when Peter had that problem, he said this. I remember when Paul had that problem, he said this. Can you imagine what the, the strength of the church would be? I'm convinced our weakness comes from our lack of knowledge in scripture and how to apply it to our lives. And the only way we can change that is to study and learn the word of God and apply it to your life. This morning we've covered quite a bit of ground. Peter told us that we've been born again, not from a corruptible seed, but an incorruptible seed. And as a result, we should lay aside certain things in our life. He told us to lay aside malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And he told us his newborn baby desires its mother's milk. That's how we should desire God's word. It should be that important to us. He also told us something important. You should have underlined it if you didn't. The word of God endures forever. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years from today, if the Lord tarries and if the earth is still going on the way it is, hopefully there'll be a pastor standing in a church preaching the same word that we're teaching this morning. It's the same thing. It's going to endure forever. He went on to tell us that we're the church and we're being built up around a chief cornerstone. 
that Jesus is the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. He said to those who believe Jesus is precious. Is he precious to you? Does he have great worth to you? But to those who don't believe, he's a stumbling block. He's offensive. Finally, Peter encouraged the believers. Remember, they're struggling with difficulty. They're struggling with persecution. He said, abstain from fleshly lusts. It's not worth it. Because they're warring against your soul. They're taking away from you. He said, let your conduct be honorable so that when they see the way that you act, they'll glorify God in heaven. May that be our prayer for ourselves.